Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the House of Pot. I'm Kaveh. And I'm Lizzie. And if this is your first time listening, we're a medical... Sort of. ...podcast, where we try to discuss medicine and health in a relatable way. And we will answer questions you may not feel comfortable asking your doctor, and definitely won't bring up to your friends. The opinions on this podcast are broadcasted for educational and informational purposes only and do not represent the opinions of our employers. These opinions are not intended as a diagnosis, treatment, or as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a local physician or other healthcare professional for your specific healthcare and or medical needs or concerns. Back to the House of Pod. I'm Kave. I'm Lizzie. And I'm Joe. Guys, how are we? Doing awesome. Damn good, Kave. Nice. I like it. Strong. Come I'm on. doing awesome because I literally just got a text from my friend Versha that she's cracking up because she's listening to the anniversary episode where Joe refers to the doctor's higher calling and the oath that we take about the hypocritical, the hypocritical <laughs> oath, which I, in the moment was so funny. And I'm yeah. really glad that other people are appreciating what we've known about right. Joe, this earnest, fun, sometimes not, stupid. sometimes not stupid. <laughs> no, no. Joe, was that, uh, uh, were you just misspeaking or is that actually what you thought it was? That's a great question, Kave, And I have to... F- Totally admit it was not a misspeaking or an accident. Um, I just thought it was called a hypocritical oath. It doesn't make sense. Never really questioned it in my mind for some reason. You know what? It makes it that much funnier. It makes me love you just that much more. Yeah. So That was a moo point. <laughs> so uh, we have a great interview coming up. Actually, we, I'll admit that we've already done the interview uh, and we want to get right to it. But before we do that, I uh, want to give a quick shout out to... One of our listeners who took the time 
to post a review on iTunes. And this really helps us, so we appreciate it and want to give it a brief read. Um, it's from A-L-I-U-Z-E-R, which we've been debating how to say it. I think it's a loser. And I think it's a winner. Aliezer? Aliezer, maybe? That's a real name, actually. That could be it. Maybe. Elijah? A podcast for and about doctors, residents, med students, future med students, and regular old Joes that are interested in medicine. See what he did there? It's nice. Why aren't there better ways to test for cancer? What is bipolar disorder and what are the signs? What TV shows or movies represents the world of medicine most accurately? These are just some of the questions discussed on this podcast. Learn about the challenges healthcare providers face and the future of medicine on the House of Pod, a medical podcast. Very cool. Thank you, man. Or woman. Or yeah, that was awesome. Non-binary person, we appreciate it. Um, please keep those coming. They really do help us get more listeners when you rate and review us. And if you have any questions, don't forget our phone number four zero eight four 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 six six two three. That is four zero eight four 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 six six two three. And our email is hopquestions at gmail dot com. We are here with Faye Jamali, former anesthesiologist in San Francisco, who's here to tell us about her personal struggle with addiction and how she mostly won the battle. Is that correct? <laughs> yes, it's a daily battle. And yes, I continue to be in recovery um, almost 10 years coming wow. up in October. So that's incredible. Very grateful. Will you tell us a little bit about your story? Um, you've been public on interviews and articles, and it's just a fascinating story of how this successful doctor <laughs> overachieving, you know, and how a, a person yeah. who you would never suspect had to deal with this. Um, well, first off, let me just thank you for having me over to share my story. I feel like uh, the more we're able to tell our stories, there will be less of a stigma associated with this disease, and it is a disease. So as a physician, I just look at it as far as it's a public health safety issue, and um, by shedding the light, I hope that we can have some smart policies regarding um, what's happening in our country right now with the opioid epidemic. So if my story um, helps anyone, that it will be worth it. Um, so I um, was probably, I always thought of myself the least likely person to ever have a problem with substance abuse. Um, I come from a Persian family. I immigrated here to the United States when I was 16. super excited. I thought we were going to do this whole interview in Farsi, by the way. <laughs> you would be sorely mistaken. <laughs> well, I speak Farsi, but Joe doesn't, so it wouldn't yeah. be fair. Oh, you do. Anyway, sorry, so go ahead. <laughs> so anyway, I immigrated here. I was 16 years old, so junior in high school in um, San Jose, California, and um no family history of problems with addiction, alcohol, didn't even know any friends or relatives who had issues with this. So um, came to the U.S., uh, went to um, Berkeley and got my um, 
degree in physiology with uh, an emphasis in art also. I'm a painter. Um, and uh, then applied to uh, medical school, did that, went to UC Davis. Then I did UCSF for <laughs> anesthesia. Um, and, you know, I remember as an anesthesia resident, we had a lecture on um, addiction, one-hour course. And I was sitting there listening, but going, oh, this is so not me. What, I'm like, mm. I was barely listening to it. Like, I don't, I graduated Berkeley, and this is a true story, without ever having tried marijuana. Kind of tells you That's, how <laughs> just not interested mm-hmm. in drugs I was. Yeah, I would have drinks at parties and stuff, but I just never, you know, I had fun in college, but was not interested in any kind of drugs. I'm so. surprised they let you graduate. I know. Go figure. I, I went to Berkeley, too. <laughs> not everyone smoked the I dope. I'm not saying you need to smoke it all the time every day, but I feel like having tried it is part of the curriculum. The college experience. I mean, I think that's, Berkeley has a reputation. Uh, yeah. Maybe yes, not when you guys does. were there. I think it's all college. That's all college. Well, here's the aside. This that is, is true. Joe is correct. Total all aside. College. But I'm going to tell you something about Berkeley. Everyone expects Berkeley to be like this bastion of super progressive, like out there free thinkers. And there's certainly that at the school. But mostly it's like kids that couldn't afford Stanford and are super hardcore <laughs> and like want to study really, really hard. So the pre-meds there are pretty scary. They, as scary as they, they are, can. which is why I wasn't pre-med for a long time. I told my mother I'm going to be an artist. And she said, over my dead body. Nice. I didn't immigrate. Oh, like I said, um, they said, I didn't immigrate to this country for you to be an artist on the street <laughs> in Berkeley, so you will apply to medical school. That's so adorable. I only applied to two, yeah. and gosh darn it, I got admitted. So I think somebody upstairs was looking out for my mother. Same thing with residency. Um, I chose anesthesia, and I thought, okay, I'm only going to apply to UC and Stanford, and that's it. And if I don't get in, I'll go to grad school in art. Wow. And you were like, you actually, Bam. you didn't really want to go, huh? Right, I really didn't want right. to go. You didn't want to go. If you only play a few uh, places, because right. like there's pre-meds that like will apply to like a hundred places. Two places. Yeah. Two places on match day. I was like, oh my God, I got in. It like happened. I was, you know. <laughs> right. In medical school at Davis, I was having fun um, working on my tan, I think, whereas my husband was on the cover of science during medical school. We had very different. Wow. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> but anyway, um, so when I got into anesthesia and I always I, wanted you, art in you the You went background. straight through, sorry. About straight through. Yeah. High school, Berkeley, med school, um, anesthesia residency. And the way this all started was I was at a joint birthday party for my son and daughter. They're both July babies. Um, This was in 2007. And as I was walking back to the car, we were at Oakland's Children's Fairyland Mm -hmm. for a birthday party. And um, as I was walking back to the car to get the goodie bags for the kids, I slipped and fell and I broke my wrist, um, which um, was kind of a bummer, a lot of pain, went and had, uh, ended up having a couple of surgeries um, for my wrist fracture and um, was prescribed pain medication by the orthopedic surgeon. Um, and it was a big bottle. I, th- I mean, I'm looking at, this was 10 years ago, it was probably 100 pills mm-hmm. in that bottle. I think he was trying to be nice 
in that, oh, you're a fellow physician. I don't Professional want you to, courtesy. courtesy. You don't, I don't want you to have to call back for a refill. You won't abuse this. Right. No, and he, I didn't have any history of it before. But it's all. also this concept of like um, conferring doctors or your colleagues a greater sort of um, some higher integrity. That maybe, uh, yeah. maybe well, no, or, yeah, yeah. or responsibility or ability to control that, that you but might I, not have. I agree with that. But I also think at that time, back in 2007, yeah. we were told to treat pain aggressively. Yeah. Right. We didn't know. They wanted us to get you down to a pain score of two out of 10 on a scale. Because I remember specifically being taught yes. when we were in medical school that you have to think of pain as, as, a, vital as a vital sign and you have to treat it yep. no matter what, which is makes sense, right? Yeah, yeah. But they would also say there is no evidence that uh, surgical, uh, giving medication after surgery for surgical pain yes. creates addiction. And I remember being a medical student and being like, I, that's, that doesn't seem right to you? That doesn't yeah. seem right to me. But I remember they kept telling us that. To and treat. To treat pain aggressively. Yeah, absolutely. And so, as an anesthesiologist, we were told that too. I mean, right. we, we're we not really responsible for the pain medication that our patients go home with. Those are the surgeons that prescribe that. Yeah. But we were told to aggressively treat pain. And this orthopedic surgeon wasn't outside the box in the number of pain pills he gave. Yeah. That was what was told, that we the chance of addiction is extremely low, they were told by manufacturers of right. these drugs. Right. The chance of addiction is extremely low when treating surgical pain. This is just like the tobacco industry yes, in like absolutely. the early 90s where you know, there's this whole pro- almost almost propaganda where it's like, it's safe, it's safe. We've been under treating pain. I'm absolutely so sad. This is a vital sign. I really, yeah. we should sort of research this. I'm sure there's articles yeah. or books about maybe how the pharmaceutical industry sort of released this. We've been under treating pain. This is, you know, be more absolutely. aggressive because the pendulum clearly now has gone swung in when you fell and you mm-hmm. broke your wrist and yeah. you need it. We need to be aggressive. And now obviously we're swinging yeah. back and it's just a really interesting. Kind I of think history. we have to absolutely be aggressive in treating pain. Yeah. But treating pain doesn't have to be just with opioids. Mm-hmm. As an anesthesiologist and as internship, there's multimodal analgesia. There's ways of we can treat pain, right. not with just opioids. Let's definitely get back to that. But yes. Let's 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 get let's back to the story. Story. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So was given a bunch of these pills. Um, had. A lot of pain. Also, I have a history of migraines um, and history of depression, off and on, mostly postpartum. So um, I took the pains, uh, pain pills as prescribed for mm-hmm. the pain. And the pain got better. But what I noticed was that when I did take the pain pills, the Vicodin, things didn't bother me as much. <laughs> it was like the stress of having two small children, a husband who was barely home. We're having some marital troubles. To me, it was like it smoothed out the edges. So I think that's when I started using it, not as prescribed, but as something to just calm me down. I was not a drinker. I'm not one that would come home and have a glass of wine. I just didn't drink. It would trigger migraines for me. So for me, it was kind of like my glass of wine. And I um, had a big stash of these I would just use it once in a while, but I think that's when um, things got blurry for me as far as the appropriate use of narcotics. Mm-hmm. You stopped um, making good decisions. Absolutely. And I wasn't, again, not taking it as prescribed. Mm-hmm. Um, I It was interesting at this time, my 
I felt like my depression was getting worse. Um, ding, ding, ding. You're taking an opioid. It's a downer. <laughs> so yeah. my depression was getting worse. Um, just life seemed ridiculous to me and I just didn't seem to manage things well. And I remember I was at work one day and I got a really bad migraine. Once in a while, I would actually have to go to the ER and get an injection. It would be that bad. I I tried every medication you can think of. I'd gotten Botox injected into my scalp and mm-hmm. all kinds of meds. But once in a while, when it was so bad, I would just go to the ER. For so like dilated? Yeah, or, or yeah. whatever the whatever. person would Morphine. give me. Yeah. I wouldn't, yeah. yeah. So for an intravenous shot of it. Mm. So um, it was end of a shift, and um, I was uh, going to go downstairs to the ER, and then I realized, oh, in my pocket, I had the... Uh, as anesthesiologists at the end of the day or at end of cases, leftover medication that we have, we Mm. waste. So I was getting changed and I noticed, oh, okay, I have to waste these drugs. And I looked at the drug that I I had in the vial and it was exactly the drug they would have been giving me in the ER. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, well, I'm a doctor. I'm an anesthesiologist. Mm -hmm. Why do I have to go deal with waiting an hour downstairs? Mm -hmm. I can just give myself this medication. I'm done with my shift. And and I remember going into a bathroom and doing that and feeling such guilt and shame. Yes, it took care of the pain, but I was like, oh my God, you just crossed the line. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is insanity. You knew it at the time. I knew it was just wrong. Yeah. So I would get these migraines cyclically during a certain time of the month. So the next day, got a migraine again, and it would always be at the end of the day by the time the stress is just like too much. And this time I didn't even think twice about it. I'm like, I know exactly what I'll do. Right. Mm-hmm. It's that mm-hmm. first time, you know, when yeah. people first right. steal or whatever, you yeah. break, you do cross a line. And so when I went and, ch- and injected the second time, that's when I got the euphoria. The mm. first time was just to take care of the pain. Yeah. The second time I, uh, something broke in my brain. I felt this immediate rush of euphoria and I was then angry at myself for, oh my God, all these years you had access to this feeling and oh. you never used. Mm-hmm. Right. That kind of shows you that right. your brain just becomes hijacked. By yeah. the disease? By and the, the drug. Yeah. I think it's interesting. The way, and looking back at it, the, the way I use drug intravenous is much more likely to lead to addiction and very quickly as okay. opposed to pills you gradually yeah. start taking it. Right. And, you know, people always ask me, well, why did you inject drugs? I'm like, well, because I'm an anesthesiologist. That's, <laughs> that's what, what you do. But that's the difference between like Xanax and Valium. Yeah. <clears throat> like the peaks are much higher, much more intense, much quicker. Mm-hmm. And that's the, that that's has the been shown to yeah. be more addictive. This was a shot straight to your um, pleasure you centers. And yeah. 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 So you had mentioned that you would go to ERs, you'd go to different doctors and you, you, or that sort of, you had an experience, you thought of at least going to ERs and yep. that was an option. Did you find yourself ever in that situation that you were trying to game the system a little bit? No, I think I'd only about... done it twice in my life. Okay. It, it was yeah. rare. Usually I could get it, fix it with first I start with Excedrin, then mm. some Sumatriptan, then mm. like just go into a dark room. Yeah. So no, I wasn't one that went to ERs frequently, but I knew that when it got really bad, that's the option. Mm-hmm. 
But I thought, yeah. oh, I'm a doctor. I can yeah. do it myself. And you probably justified it in your head because that's what you do when you have an addiction. You're like, well, I'm actually saving the ER time. Right. I'm saving the hospital money, the taxpayer, no, I did blah, blah, not blah. think of myself as an addict. Right. I thought of myself, I'm a doctor. I am treating this pain. Mm-hmm. And you're saving I can't. Heaven. I cannot be an addict. I'm a soccer mom. Right. <laughs> you know? Like, so, who so for Joe, that? the ER docs, um, we should have an ER doc on pride themselves on being able to sniff out these people who Kaveh is alluding to are gaming the system where they'll go from ER, ER to, to ER, ER to ER every day, every weekend to say, I'm in such severe pain, I need Dilaudid. Then they'll go to the next ER, I'm in such severe pain, I'm allergic to <clears throat> aspirin, I'm allergic to Tylenol, I'm allergic to Toradol, yeah. I need Dilaudid or yeah. fentanyl. Wow. And yeah. you know, you clearly didn't have that history, which is why the doctor gave you a hundred pills of yeah. whatever the drug yeah. of the day yeah, was. And can you also um, explain mm-hmm. to Joe and our listeners, you said at the end of the day, you would go and waste and, you yeah. know, Kaveh and I do <clears throat> procedures every day with Versed, you know, which is midazolam, a benzodiazepine like Xanax or Valium. And we use fentanyl, which everyone knows mm-hmm. now, a morphine kind of friend. Mm-hmm. And our nurses have to waste any medicine we don't use. And there's always two nurses and they go to this computer, they have to put their finger in and they have to, one has to watch the other waste the drugs. Yeah, yeah. So back then, was it different 10 years ago or do anesthesiology, because I actually don't know, do the physicians not need no, someone no, to observe we do, their we waste? Did, we did, but it was a much less stringent. It would be like you'd go with like a, another doctor would be like, okay, just um, confirm that I wasted this. Since half the time they don't even look what you're wasting. Right, so, exactly. Um, again, when I started, it wasn't something that I did daily, but um, so this happened the first time in, I injected within a three month period, I had upped my dose tenfold. Wow. wow. I started out with 25 mics of fentanyl. Mm-hmm. At the end, I was doing one shot of 250 of fentanyl. That's, a, that's not, quite a bit. At quite one a time. bit. That's at like all, one wow. time. That'd be a very dangerous thing As for an Joe, for someone. This is not something even when someone's completely uh, anesthetized, we rarely do that. But for someone with no history of addiction, I think I showed rare talent for it. <laughs> <laughs> so was that your rock bottom? What was rock bottom? Oh, there, so there were quite a few rock bottoms. Um, it was a so, rocky shoal. Yes. So, you know, when this happened, I, um, I didn't know what was going on with me. I kept saying, well, I'm going to stop this. No, no, no I'm going to stop. Or you can stop. Yeah, right? that I can. I, again, I didn't think, I didn't know of anyone who was an addict. I really didn't. I mm-hmm. just like, addict to me was the homeless person on the street. It yeah. wasn't a doctor. Right. And I thought, I can stop this. I have dealt with much harder things in my life. I can definitely do this. And so I would make myself say, okay, I'm not going to use even one time this week. None. And what would happen is I would have a craving and I would inject. Thankfully, I never injected during work hours. Um, But I was worried that, oh, my God, if this disease progresses, I could hurt myself, overdose, or hurt a patient. I mean, I was terrified. Um, and I kept thinking of my two children and that what would happen to them if I died of this. So I used to um, inject in my arms here, and I remember making myself put a Band-Aid on each arm and writing my children's names on each of them. Mm-hmm. And I told myself... Um, 
Look, pretend you are injecting into the eyeballs of your children. Mm. That will stop you. Yeah. Right? But when the craving hits, there is nothing that you can do. And I would rip those Band-Aids, inject, and feel even worse. Mm-hmm. So this is a disease that feeds on itself. Um, it is not a moral shortcoming. It is a process that goes on in your brain. And um, unless you get help, this will kill you. Hearing you <laughs> tell this... Thank you for sharing that, by the way. Yeah. You're going to make me cry. Yeah. It's not going to be pretty. Um, <laughs> or me. But you sharing this, I think, is super important with doctors because... <sighs> You and I have a very similar sort of trajectory, you know, Bay Area, yeah. um, Berkeley, Davis, <laughs> two kids, all that stuff. And you show beyond a doubt that this can happen to anyone. Yeah. And this is the kind of thing that can occur. And it is a disease process. Yeah. And you don't, it, doctors, we get frustrated by it. People get mad about this and it's hard and we have to recognize it as a disease. Yeah. And I mean, Kaveh and I do liver and we have all these patients who just keep drinking even though their livers are done. Scarred, cirrhosis it's called. And we, um, and I, now I often say like, so you haven't drunk, haven't drank, great, drink. haven't drank, great job. It's been 30 days. What, how are you going to continue that? And they'll say, no, I don't, I don't need help. I can do it. I'm like... Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. I, you know, you say that, but what happens when the bills, you know, you can't pay the bills or you're sad or whatever? How, what's your coping? Like, I really now start to ask you, what is your infrastructure? And, you know, because people just say, I don't need AA, I don't need, we call it like a chemical dependency C program. I don't, CDRP. they say no, no, no. Mm -hmm. And I'll say, I don't think you're preparing for the future and the bumps that are going to come. And how can you do that? And a question I have for you is, um, why are anesthesiologists or do you, I think it's known that anesthesiologists are more susceptible. Do you think that's a personality thing or a selection bias, or do you think it's actually access to medication or both? I think it's a combination. There are a few specialties that tend to have higher percentage of um, physicians who get addicted. Um, anesthesiology, ER, and psychiatry. Those mm -hmm. are the three professions. I think for anesthesiology, I think part of it is the fact that we are around those drugs mm -hmm. daily. We have access to it. Yeah. So that will um, definitely lend itself to more. I don't know if it selects for um, people who want to be around these drugs. Mm -hmm. um, if it does, it is the quickest way of dying, man, because you have access to the most potent narcotics. And so for me, one of the, uh, again, as far as my story and, and rock bottoms, other than that time with the Band-Aids uh, with my children's name on it, there was one time where I went out to dinner with my husband 
and I we had a fight. It was like 8.30 at night, and I went straight to the hospital, walked straight into the recovery room with my civilian clothes, not in scrubs, said hi to the nurses, went to the narcotic machine, the Pixis, just picked a random name, checked out narcotics, wasn't a patient I was taking care of or mm-hmm. anything, went to the bathroom, and I injected. I remember waking up. Um, the needle was still in my arm. I had vomited. I had urinated on myself on the floor. And that's how anesthesiologists die in bathrooms. Because the first dose I gave myself was a safe one. But after that, you become altered. You're not a physician anymore. So you're like, oh, there's more left in the vial. And you give yourself more. Just give them more. Give what's there. So that first dose, you might be a doctor and like, okay, I know exactly what to give and whatnot. Mm -hmm. I could have died in that bathroom, right? So I got up. Instead of being horrified, I was angry at my husband because, God damn it, if he, we hadn't had this fight, I wouldn't have done this. Mm-hmm. That shows you the disease working. Yeah. That is the disease in process. And, you know, when you're talking about this is a chronic disease like diabetes, you know what? Do you say, okay, 28 days of insulin, then, then you're cured? No. This is a lifelong disease. The recovery is lifelong. You can definitely have an amazing life in recovery, but it's not like, oh, you're cured, you're done. No. There's no conquering this battle necessarily. It's just, it's a daily process. It is daily and you can win it every day, Mm -hmm. but you do it every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I got a question. Um, sure. Just in general with opioids, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I, I've seen and heard a lot of stories like yours, Dr. Jamali, and I'm wondering why are opioids even used for pain? Is it just that's the only thing that will help with pain? We just don't have the the uh, drugs for it? Or, no, no. There are certain um, conditions. Uh, opioids are amazing analgesics or pain relievers. They really are. Patients with cancer, chronic pain, there's definitely a place for opioid. But the problem we got into is over-prescribing it and only treating pain with opioids. It definitely has, for example, in surgery, you need opioids. Someone who's anesthetized having their belly cut open, you need opioids. It is rare to be able to do a surgery with no opioids. Occasionally we do, but we use other modalities like a local anesthetic, a regional nerve block, Mm -hmm. an epidural, things like that. So right now our push has become, yes, opioids should be there. We shouldn't swing the pendulum so far back that we're not treating pain. We should aggressively treat pain, but we can do things like non-opioids, like uh, um, non-steroidal uh, anti-inflammatory drugs like Toradol, it's like a cousin of ibuprofen, but intravenous, um, local anesthetics, nerve blocks, good physical therapy, acupuncture, you name it. There's so many things that you can do. So we shouldn't say opioids have no room in treating patient uh, pain, but we should definitely do a, what we call a multimodal approach to it. I think a, an important distinction is um, like acute pain, like post-op, mm-hmm. you know, you have surgery and chronic pain. You know, we sit, we see patients like cancer patients and mm-hmm. Kaveh and I see like irritable bowel patients and you can't really take certain diseases and say we're going to give you narcotic because you know the dose will just need to be escalated and it's not, it shouldn't be for three months, six months, a year. And the multimodal approach is um, very smart to do. And you have to understand that every single medicine has risks and benefits. Addiction is one, you know, for narcotics, but like 
ibuprofen type medicines, bleeding. you know, cave and I see stomach bleeding <laughs> all the yeah. time. Yeah. Tylenol has liver, t- you know, yeah. there's, there's no perfect medication. Otherwise we would use it, but everything has to be like, um, and I think that's yeah. why when you use two or three different drugs to treat pain, you use much less of each drug and you target pain from three different angles, three yeah. different ways. So it's actually better pain control with less uh, problems. Yeah. So. And pain is hard. It's subjective. You know, it's just, it's not the easiest thing to treat. Absolutely. So you've talked a little bit about what's changing in the OR in terms mm-hmm. of using nerve blocks instead of yeah. using more of the same medication. What... Um, what needs to change in training? What needs to change mm-hmm. in terms of medical school? Because right. like I said, when we were in medical school, we were taught to aggressively treat with opioids and other yeah. medications. What needs to change? And you said you had one hour of curriculum yeah. in your like 10 years of training. You know, yeah. that's yeah. insane. I, um, you know, I haven't been talking directly with different medical schools to see what's happening, but what I have been told that there's much more training on opioid prescription now. Mm-hmm. Um, even as physicians now, we are, they track how much we prescribe. Mm-hmm. There is like, the push is to like no more than five days of narcotics after after a procedure. Oh uh, yeah. yeah. So they're limiting this. And uh, I think in medical school, they're finally getting to this. And yeah. also with um, anesthesia residencies, they're talking more about this. This opioid epidemic, is awful, but at least it's shedding light on this situation. Yeah. yeah. People uh, are starting to learn about it. Yeah. Then. Yeah. So in your story, what, what happened next? At what point after rock bottom, mm-hmm. what happened then? So, um, one day I'd say three months into my using intravenous drugs, I, um, was at work. I was finishing up a case and, um, someone said, Hey, they, someone from administration wants to talk to you. And I was like, oh, my God. And you know what? In um, I think subconsciously I wanted to get caught because I would go to that machine and put my fingerprint on it, my name, mm-hmm. and just pick a random name. Of course the pharmacy is going to find out, just randomly picking stuff. So looking back, I think that was my cry for help because during the time I was going through it, there was so much shame associated with it. I couldn't tell anyone. Nobody knew. Nobody mm-hmm. knew. I was never altered at work, never used at work. Nobody saw me uh, using ever. So Your husband, did no, he? No, no had no he, idea. No suspicions. None. How many Zero. times do you think you drove home from work impaired? Didn't. Yeah. No, didn't. Yeah. I would probably, most of the times I would, um, I worked part-time. Okay. So I would take the medications home yeah. and then use it on my day off mm-hmm. at home. Okay. That's mostly what yeah, I yeah. did. Because yeah. that's the kind of stuff that... No, that would be terrified. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I knew in the back of my mind, this disease was progressing. I was using more and I was terrified. So anyway, they uh, confronted me. I walked, they said, we need you to come to this conference room. And I walked into this conference room. There was maybe six or seven people around the table. Oh, wow. And they just said, Dr. Jamali, we've been going over narcotic records and um, there seems to be a problem. And... At that point, I didn't even have the presence of mind to say anything. I just kept saying, I don't know. I don't know. I just like my world was crashing in. Mm-hmm. And I, um, they said, well, give us your badge. We're starting an investigation. Um, and um, that's it. So they accompanied me to my locker, checked my locker. There was no medications. Um, and they sent me home. And I thought, oh, my God, 
what am I going to tell my husband? What am I going to tell my children? Yeah. I just, I didn't know what to do. I'm like, do I just pretend to go to work tomorrow and not go? Like, I, I just didn't know what to do. That night, interestingly enough, we had a marriage counseling session because our marriage was falling apart. And towards the end of the session, the therapist said, Faye, you look really sad. And I just said, I blurted it out. I'm like, well, there's some drugs missing at work and they think I had something to do with it. And my husband comes rushing to my defense. They're like, don't they even know? You don't, you don't even drink. You don't do stuff. No, what are they mm. talking about? And I felt so much worse. I was like, oh, my oh. God, he has no idea. Right. Right. So we, we ended up going home that night, put the kids to bed. At, and then later on, I came downstairs where my husband was. And he just looked at me and he's like, Faye, is there something you want to tell me? And I thought, oh, God, this is it. This is where I tell him that I'm addicted to drugs. I've lost my job. We're already having trouble. He's going to divorce me. He's going to take the kids. I won't have a job. It was the lowest point of my life. I couldn't, I couldn't, it was the darkest time. I couldn't even say the words. I just rolled up my sleeves and I showed him the track marks on my arm. Wow. And I thought, okay, here it comes. This is it. And, um, you know what he did? Instead, he picked me up and said, sweetie, we'll get you help. Why didn't you tell me? You know? And I don't think I've loved him um, any more than that. That moment was pretty amazing. And also, that was the moment where I thought, you know, the truth, no matter how hard and how dark your situation, telling the truth is actually the first step to getting better. Yeah. And that's what I did. Um, the next day, I called up and um, told the hospital and I went into recovery Um, there is a physician who is my guiding light Um, I'll just say his name Dr. Painting Um, he had treated me years ago for depression and so when the the hospital had talked to him and said we think this physician is diverting medications they're like no she has no history of problems he's he's an addiction doctor and he was surprised too that this had happened Mm. to me so he told me um when i went to him and he said faye this is going to be a long hard road but we're going to get you help you can deal with this and the kindness he showed at my darkest hour was amazing and um at the time one month before this happened i um they had stopped the california's what we call the diversion program, where physicians who are impaired or have problems with substance abuse disorder go into a program where they do their recovery, and as long as they're successful in this program, the medical board leaves them alone. They had completely done away with it one month hmm. before this happened. Um, so well. I had no idea what was going to happen to my license. I didn't know, but I needed to get help. So... Yeah. Um, at that point, um, I was told because I had a very short history of this, he didn't think I needed to go away for three months to like Betty Ford or something like that. I never bought drugs off the street. It was um, short time, no history of it. And so he put me on an outpatient setting where I would go every day to a recovery program and come home at night to be with my children, which was great. Um, first day in recovery, uh, where I went to the program, I remember walking in. I was dressed nicely, had some pearls on, and this guy sitting next to me is like, hey, so what are you here for? Alcohol? And I looked at him, I'm like, no, I shoot up drugs. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Just kind of shows you that 
you have this image yeah. of people who are IV drug abusers being mm. homeless. And you are not no. it. Right. And the IV drug abusers had no idea that you could have been an IV. They're yes. like, you don't belong no, with no, them. You don't be- yeah. Yeah. I didn't fit. And when I went in there, though, I just thought, okay, 28 days, I can do this, right? I'll be cured after 28 days. Because I had no idea what recovery meant. Yeah. And it was only through recovery that I got the tools of being able to deal with life. Since I've been in recovery, I've had breast cancer. I've had six surgeries, double mastectomies. I, um, my mother had a massive stroke. I almost got divorced. But through all of this, I never used. That's right? amazing. It's yeah. amazing with it all those gives, stressors. Yes, despite all those stressors and going through six different surgeries. So two questions. Yeah. The big question overall is what was it that prevented you from relapsing with all mm-hmm. those stressors? And two, specifically regarding the surgeries, yeah. how did you handle pain management? Yeah. So um, what happens with recovery is if you are serious about recovery and you practice it every day, it doesn't mean life becomes rosy. Life still has ups and downs. It gives you the tools of dealing with life. A lot of the problems we have is whenever there's pain, we want to numb ourselves to the pain. So psychological pain, physical pain. But for me, what I learned through recovery is in order to deal with the pain, you actually have to feel it and get through to the other side of it. And so relying on your friends and family, going to meetings, um, meditation, yoga, taking care of yourself, not numbing yourself to the pain, taking it minute by minute sometimes, day by day, lets you get through it. Mm -hmm. But if you use, you have 30 seconds of euphoria and then nothing else. You have the same problems. The problem hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. So uh, for me, that was great. And also when you have surgery, you have to have a plan when you're an addict. Um, and the plan is usually you give the medication that you're supposed to take, like the Vicodin, whatever. I gave it to my husband. I didn't know where it was. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. they you give still, it to you. You, you need it. You absolutely need it. We have some people who are poor purists and let's say AA or an A and like, no, no, doctor, I don't want it. So that's the problem is then the pain becomes so unbearable yeah. that they're go to IV heroin, let's right. say. You know what I'm saying? They medicate so, themselves yeah, in some way. You take it, and after three, four days of it, like take it, give it back to the pharmacy, flush it down the toilet. I don't care what you do. I never know where that medication was. Yeah. And also during that time, I up my time where I talk to my sponsor or talk to other people. Just like take, you have to have a plan in place before surgery Yeah. and put it into motion. Yeah. So No, it's great. And, and why... I mean, you mentioned it before, but just we'll bring, bring it home. Why uh-huh. talk about it? Why now? Why do you want to share your story? Um, you know, I think a lot of times um, when something has a stigma associated with it, then people don't want to help. Um, and if I share my story, if I can show you that a... Um, hardworking physician with two uh, children and a husband who you would, you wouldn't think would ever become addicted. This can happen to me. It can happen to anybody. And, um, my story in all honesty is no different than the homeless person who is addicted because you are trying to numb yourself to some pain in your life. And then that medication hijacks your brain. 
So it's not a moral failing on your part. We should treat it as a disease or else we're going to lose a generation to this disease. This needs, if we can take away the stigma, there will be more of a public support for putting dollars in recovery programs. Because this is not something that you can just fix like a, oh, you have an infection, a week of antibiotics, you're done. No. So this is a lifelong program. I think one of the reasons physicians are so successful in staying in recovery is you have an incentive. You have an amazing job that you don't want to lose. Mm -hmm. So again, so out there, if people have jobs, if they're not jobless, they have something to work forward. Have to have something to lose. Yes. And also we have the insurance and the means to get good recovery programs, go to an addiction program, recovery program. We need to make that available for non-physicians or people who can't afford it. So, but none of that, all of that needs money and none of that money will be going toward it unless there is a public outcry about this. And it sounds like you had the support system. You had I was lucky. Your, your employer, your family, your husband, your friends like that sounds like, again, a huge element, not yeah. only addressing the crisis, but also then what to do for people who are currently in it, you know, prevention Absolutely. and treatment. So Absolutely. I know that you've been speaking about this, mm-hmm. um, but do you get doctors reaching out to you sort of personally i'm assuming no one's posting it like on your facebook page like that they have a problem but people must be coming up to you yes absolutely i've um been very fortunate in that um doing these podcasts and being out there i've had friends of friends other physicians reach out to me um and i i am not an addictions specialist i'm just telling my story and listening to theirs. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's all you need, someone who's not going to judge you but actually offer you help. We thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been such a wonderful kind of story, and um, you're very brave and honest, and I'm grateful, you know, for people that I know and I can refer. Is there a way that people can find you easily that, you know, if they want to reach out? Yeah, absolutely. You can always reach out to me to my email, Mm -hmm. fayejamali at gmail.com. And that's spelled F-A-Y-E-J-A-M-A-L-I at gmail.com. And then we can set up a time to talk. I'll be happy to come meet with you Um, again. If I can just help one person, it's worth it. Oh, I'm sure you already probably have. And I want to reiterate that, you know, Lizzie used the word brave, and we hear that word used a lot when people talk about their (laughs) disease, but you are really particularly brave in this situation. We've had guests on who've come to talk about bipolar disease Mm -hmm. and and mental illness, and Mm -hmm. when people come and talk about addiction, Mm -hmm. that takes real courage, because you don't have to. You could go about your life very well, and we would never have guessed, but you're (laughs) doing it for the right reasons, and you want to share it and help remove that stigma, and we really appreciate it. Is there, um, what are you doing now briefly? Can you just tell us? Yeah, uh, you know, I left anesthesia a couple years ago and um, decided to focus on some uh, art and um, combining art and medicine. So I got some training in aesthetic medicine, about to open my own business um, in uh, Marin County. It's called Bell Marin in Mill Valley, where I'll be practicing the art of medicine, where I get to do uh, Botox, fillers, lasers, cool sculpting, things like that. So I'm really excited. It's a new chapter in my life, and I don't think I would have had the courage to get up and do something different if I hadn't had all these experiences. I am forever grateful that this happened to me because of this. I didn't get my old life back. I got a 
better version of my old life back. And not that I recommend people have problems with addiction to get their <laughs> life in order, but, you know, I'm grateful. And if I can just yeah. help any, someone else with this, then it'll be worth it, Great. sharing my story. I can't wait to come to Belmarine and get some work done. Yeah, Javi <laughs> needs it. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you for Thank coming. Thank you. Please make sure to like us on Facebook, review us on iTunes, and tell your friends to listen. You can email us at hopquestions at gmail.com or call us at 408-444-6623, and we are also now on Stitcher. All anecdotes and patient-related details have been changed with respect to date, sex, and certain details so that patient identification is not possible. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.